Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses podcast. Hi, folks. This is Christian Haynes from Gamers with Glasses. I'm joined by Roger Whitson. Hi there. Nate Schmidt. Hello, hello. And Chris Brew. Hey. And we're Gamers with Glasses. So Gamers with Glasses is your best podcast, bringing together scholars, developers, fans, and all kinds of other folks to talk about and write about and think about video games. For this episode, our special topic is game difficulty. We're going to be talking about all different kinds of difficulty, when to put that easy mode on, when to put that hard mode on, uh, when to call it quits, when to rage quit. I also wanted to talk about the fact that we've got a couple exciting things coming up. We've got an interview with the game studies scholar Patrick Gigoda on his new book that just came out today, Experimental Games. We also got a spoiler cast coming up on Miles Morales later in December, and lots of other great content coming down the pipeline. So I think we will start off like we always start off, and that's with the games we're playing. Yeah, so Chris, what have you been playing? Uh, I've been playing uh, Borderlands 2, or no, Borderlands the pre-sequel, which uh, I know is an old game. Uh, I actually uh, played the Borderlands in sequence with 1 and 2 when they when uh, they first came out. And I love their whole kind of trippy comic book aesthetic. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of boneheaded and it's a boneheaded shooter, but like, but there's a deep pleasure, uh, like, like, you know, both in the in the conventions of the shooter and, uh, and in and in the pleasure of just like being a kind of Halo style shooter where you don't have to be that talented. And you get to like, you know, like, watch different ways of killing people and, and, and wreak may, you know, wreaking mayhem. And, and uh, yeah, and the writing, I think, is, is actually better than, than, than it needs to be, which, which makes me happy. That and I'm still finishing The Outer Lands, which I need to get back to, uh, which I love because I love all kinds of RPGs. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and I love, you know, sort of like flying through the universe with this, like, you know, ragtag queer collective that, that you've assembled in, 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 uh, um, uh, in Outer Lands and, um, or, or what is it? Outer World, sorry, The Outer World. That's the word. That's the, the game I'm thinking of. And uh, yeah, I just enjoy it. It's a fun game. So yeah, I really enjoyed. Uh, you know, I've played Borderlands for a long time. I just mm-hmm. finished the DLC for Borderlands Three, mm-hmm. and it was really interesting. It's really interesting to kind of look at that entire game as kind of like a whole because it, it seems like you know the the writing is always smart and funny yeah. and interesting. Totally, and totally. I love the I love the sort of mashup of RPGs and and shooters that yeah. they kind of do with that. Yeah, totally. And then um but I found like, you know, early on the humor is really interesting and I think it gets a lot more sophisticated as 
as you get new sequels in the, it, absolutely, in the franchise. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I love the way they, they, they both, uh, you know, what's interesting in the, the pre-sequel, and I haven't played three yet, but uh, that Jack is goes from being, you know, just the worst kind of frat boy villain, right, to, uh, um, you know, and, uh, you know, apologies to frat boys out there, but anyway, uh, um, and, uh, uh, you know, to, to actually being kind of a, a, a semi-appealing, reasonable character in, in, in the pre-sequel, and, and that, that may change. I'm still, like, you know, in the first third of the game, but, uh, you know, it's interesting to, to actually see how the narrative unfolds. I also like the the idea of like all the different forms of sort of psychotic performance that you get from different characters within the space that like, you know, I mean, it's basically, uh, you know, a fantasy of, of the old Western vision of the Wild West with fewer laws, you know, and uh, and, and and more mayhem. And, and you know, and, and there's a kind of like glimpse into what that does to personalities sometimes, I think, in, in, in the various characters, which I love. Like, right now I'm playing Nisha, who's, uh, you know, a badass, uh, you know, uh, sheriff uh, and uh, uh, I think a woman of color in the game, which is interesting. Uh, you, um, although it's, yeah, I mean, they, they don't mark it necessarily one way or another. But uh, but she's really interesting because she has she's this kind of mashup of a kind of conservative discourse of law and order and then like, a you know, like she just looks badass and punk and, and like, you know, like, you know, sort of creates her own rules at the same time. And, you know, I mean, it's, she's an interesting character that way. So, yeah. I mean, it seems like the common thread in your games, Chris, too, is that you're talking about both games where you're playing these like frontier spaces that are just yeah. being turned into like corporate wastelands, basically. Uh, oh, and you're absolutely. coming in as this like, you're not necessarily some kind of savior figure, a little bit maybe more in Outer Worlds. You Outer are, Worlds for sure. Of. Yeah, totally. But you're yeah. more just like in the chaos, you know, with a satirical critique surrounding you of capitalism more or less. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of like, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of like my day job too. Like many of our day jobs do, right. You know, like we're, you know, many of us teach and, you know, you're teaching while, while the chaos of, of neoliberalism and, and contemporary capitalism is flying around you. And, and, you know, half the time you're just like trying to look for a good joke and a, and, and a way of shooting your way out of the next situation you're in, you know? So um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it's, I mean, we should talk about this at some point with, with in, in a more extended way, but I'm, I'm interested in the ways in which capitalism figures so heavily in these games. I, I just finished teaching a film class where we were looking at a bunch of films from Fight Club to us, uh, to Joker, to uh, Parasite, um, and looking at class rage in those films and the class allegories in those films. And I, I'm, I'm struck by how much class has become a central focus of, of contemporary culture again. Um, uh, and, and I think these games, you know, with their kind of ironic um, and sometimes overly cynical commentaries on, you know, capitalism is just about appropriate appropriation and exploitation, which it is, but like, but they, but they do it in a way where they critique it and then they, and then they like revel in it at the same time, you know, and like occasionally what I would like to see more of, and I, and, and you do see this in the outer worlds is like, you know, how do you build a collective that, 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 that is otherwise oriented? You know, how do you build, build a collective that actually moves towards, uh, you know, a, a better vision of, of, of society. And, and, and it's interesting to think about what games do that and which ones don't so yeah yeah i think um it's interesting so like the game that one of my games that i'm talking about this this week is uh finishing up wasteland 3 mm -hmm. and uh it's funny because it's very similar in the sense that you know it's a post-apocalyptic world you're literally uh this group of 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 uh fighters bottled after the texas rangers and you have oh, like wow. a you have That's like a trippy. star on your on your on your you know thing on your chest and uh 
you know, you can there there is this huge question of like of like class occurring in that game as well, mm-hmm. um, where you can choose to help out a bunch of refugees or you can choose to help out the richest family in uh, in the in the world at that time, right? Wow. Yeah, and you get different, <clears throat> you know, you get different bonuses going either way, but like, um, it's interesting that um, I think towards the end you get right on the edge of that question of like, what is this new world going to look like? And it doesn't answer it. And that's when it ends. Right. And I, I find that films do that. Like they, they, they can't or not films. <laughs> I find Game. a lot of different, a lot of different narratives do that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Games or yeah. films or, or yeah, books. They, both they, they can't imagine that. Like it's, yeah. it's this sort of ending that happens. or something. Yeah. Like we maybe talked about this last time. And so I'm sorry if I'm bringing up old news, but I know, I know. We at least haven't heard from from Chris about it. Uh, do either of you have thoughts on uh, what it's like to be playing the end of the world and living through it at the same time? <laughs> like, in terms of, you know, like I, my my favorite kinds of post apocalyptic entertainment it just hit differently right now mm-hmm. for me. They do, and I'm just curious, mm-hmm. um, especially in like Borderlands and Wasteland. Like, what what where where are you folks at on that? I was uh, initially quite reticent to to you know engage in any kind of material that was about that stuff in in the beginning of the pandemic. Um, in fact, I I really sort of put off reading Kim Stanley Robinson's new book for precisely that reason because it was about really heavy stuff. Um, but uh, you know, I don't know. It's interesting. I find that like. I wonder if that question is different now than it was at the beginning of the pandemic, because like at the beginning of the pandemic, it really felt like the world was falling apart. And certainly we have a lot of problems right now. I'm not, I don't want to downplay that at all, but like, you know, there is this sense and maybe it's a false one. Maybe it's a false sense that things are kind of like, you know, we're not out of the woods, but we have the light is at the end of the tunnel as a lot of people say on on television. And so um, I wonder if I wonder if in my own unconscious I've kind of like taken that <laughs> taken that story and kind of and it's enabled me to start engaging with this material again. So for me, it's a funny thing where like I actually feel like dystopias are. are I mean, I think they both bring up all kinds of really interesting spaces and moments. And to, to circle back to Christian's question about things like Borderlands, um, part of what's interesting there is that it's more um, uh, a, uh, th- there are spaces of extraction. There are spaces that are like on the edges of capitalism rather than at the heart of capitalism. They're, they're where capitalism expands uh, and, and, and creates both lawlessness and a new set of laws at the same time. Uh, and I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about it because often those spaces, class is also racialized and, and you know, and race functions as a modality of class. And you have all kinds of work like gendered work and racialized work that, that don't count as work that get appropriated in those, those spaces. And so that's really interesting to me. But um, but on, but on the other hand, playing in relationship to the pandemic, uh, uh, I don't know. Like I, I mean, I played uh, Last of Us two, you know, and, and I know a number of us wrote about that as you know for the site. Uh, um, but uh, I was actually sort of like I wanted utopian games and not not easy utopian games. I wanted games that actually had a vision of the future. I'm still I'm, I'm not ready to throw in the towel here at all. Like like I'm not ready to call this the apocalypse. I mean, first of all, I think the apocalypse is going to happen is not 
uh, the pandemic. I actually right, think it's, it's, it's climate change, right? Yeah. And you know that. Yeah, yeah I know you know climate. that. Nate. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So like, and 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 I, I refuse to just sort of dwell in the space of the of, of of the negative here. I actually think that the most important work we can do is to how do we imagine a different infrastructure that's not so you know destructive, that's not so appropriative. And I, I'd love to see games take that on more. I agree. Like one of the things that drove me nuts with. Um, Bioshock Infinite uh, was oh. was the ways in which it both like staged a revolution against a racist and imperialist and and class based regime and then backed the fuck up out of it you know and like like and said you know it's just as bad when the other people take over and I'm like no it's not you know like like yeah <laughs> that drove me nuts so anyway yeah yeah but this well, is I also think... like a genre problem as well right like this is also the problem of what we're dealing with like role playing games action role playing games and the like when we have you know, a whole set of genres or subgenres of like the sim game, uh, recent games like Before We Leave, uh, recent games uh, like Cloud Gardens that are all in fact about constructing things out of ruins or about, you know, Before We Leave a sim game about kind of trying to leave a planet in decent shape before you leave it. Uh, and so there is that space, but it's interesting that it's not necessarily like the AAA space. It's like the... It's the indie. Indeed, yeah. a, indeed a double A, right? Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I would say I would say Wasteland 3 has an interesting... I don't. It's not an answer, and it's not a... I mean, it's not anything. But, like, you know, one of the main plot lines through that story is that you are initially working for this guy named the Patriarch, who is basically this this warlord, right? He's basically a warlord. But the argument is that he at least uh, keeps order. Um, and, and people are generally mostly safe in, in his, in his, uh, in his, in his, uh, in Colorado that he, that he controls. Um, and, but the problem is, is that any dissidents are locked up. And so like at one point you have to choose, are you going to back him or aren't you? And in the final battle, right, he's in this tank and he's saying like, well, it's all going to fall apart. It's everything's going to be destroyed once you take over and try to institute a more democratic way of life, blah, blah, blah. And you can choose to sort of accept that or not. And um, so just the fact that I think you're able to choose not to listen to that, I think, is is kind of interesting in that game, at least. So, um. It is interesting how these games have these real politic scenarios always. Like, you know, you have to choose this or you choose that. And if you get too utopian, sometimes they punish you, which is interesting. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. Right. You got to um, have that grit. You got to have that edge. The other the other game I'm playing right now is 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 actually a roguelike uh, Scourge Bringer. I actually I actually bought it. It's like a $15 game. So it's a it's a cheap game. Uh, it's so fun. It's so addictive. Um, it's sort of a mashup of a bullet hell type scenario kind of linked with um sort of fast action um and i I don't even know what the story is i'm just running around hitting things basically and (laughs) video games it's very very satisfying in that way um and in like any roguelike you have to start over every time but you know like most roguelike you get certain things that you can advance through and um i find that it 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 actually um uh, there's actually i think a um a line that's hard to tread in roguelike games between difficulty and um giving you enough of um of something to keep you coming back to it and i think 
that game and particularly Dead Cells, those are two roguelikes that I think do that really well. Um, so I really, I've been enjoying it. Well, Scourgebringer is fun. I played it for just like a couple of evenings for a couple hours each because it's on Game Pass. So I had never even heard of it, and it was on Game Pass, and I saw that it had a very low amount of uh, memory required to download it. So I was like, I can download this and play something new. Uh, and the thing that I loved about that, Roger, besides everything you've described, is that ideally you're never touching the ground Yeah. with a character, right? Like you've got a dash move, and every time you hit a character with your sword, uh, which is your primary weapon, you can dash or jump again. So ideally, you want to just never touch the ground, and there are rewards for never touching the ground, and you're just like zipping from enemy to enemy uh, in the chaos. And I also just want to plug one of the things that I've seen in a lot of uh, indie roguelikes in particular in recent years, and some indie just difficult platformers, which is a ton of accessibility options, including difficulty accessibility. So you can slow down bullets, you can, you know, increase your damage rate. You've seen that in Hades, you've seen that in Celeste, had a really nice fine-grained difficulty level. And I know we're get inching in a little bit maybe to our next discussion, but one of the things that I'm loving that I'm seeing in a lot of recent games is just that customize your difficulty customize the way you play this game mm -hmm. interesting yeah yeah i think um i really enjoyed that with celeste and um i think that that's definitely one way you can do it um i'm not sure exactly how scourge if scourge bringer does that i i didn't see it does bullet speed and a few oh, other okay. things like that and i think it does cool. the amount of life you have oh, i know cool. because at a certain point i was like i'm only going to play this game for so long so i'm going to knock the bullet <laughs> speed down to 70 percent and feel slightly guilty about it when i go to bed but i don't care so you I customize really... go ahead oh, go ahead go ahead go ahead oh you customize so much more than i do i'm always afraid of like you know when you when you got a new stereo system back in the 70s and you started messing with the equalizer and you would never get it right again you know like it would just you know the, the sound would always be off so i always just leave it on whatever the hell they give it to me uh unless i switch like a whole category like i'm just gonna go easy or i'm just gonna go hard but i admire the fine grain so yeah when i first started playing games in the early 90s like really started playing them like the first thing I would do half the time when I downloaded or not downloaded, installed a new game on 3.5 inch floppies uh, was just start browsing the files and see what would happen if I would change characters or change things in files. And half the time I broke the game and had to reinstall it. But the other half the time, my character was immortal or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Um, Christian, what are you playing? What am I playing? So I, I think just bringing uh, us back to, I guess, what's our inadvertent theme, perhaps, for the games we're playing section, at least uh, until Nate, I'm sure, just like sends us into chaos. Uh, <laughs> that is one. You yeah, you're on welcome, podcast. Nate. Like I said, this is the anti-Nate podcast. <laughs> we decided we hundred reasons yeah. to hate he, Nate. He's been um, very well behaved this whole yeah. time. So, so far, so, yeah. It's yeah, exactly. Quiet. Yeah, yeah. Ten yeah. things I hate about Nate, uh, starring <laughs> Heath Ledger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm playing a game called Umarangi Generation, uh, which is made by uh, two Australian developers, uh, one of whom uh, is Maori Indigenous, uh, and is a game that the the head developer. Um, so I think everything's done by one person except for the music, and that person was run a little bit later. Uh, 
but the central developer uh, Tali Faulkner, who's also known online as a uh, vessel uh, or Veselikov, uh, describes it as an indigenous futurism game. But basically, it's a photography game. Think a little bit like Pokemon Snap, except you're not on rails and you're photographing uh, post-apocalyptic or seemingly post-apocalyptic environments. Uh, the developer has described it also as indigenous cyberpunk, but also reminding folks that cyberpunk's not supposed to be, hey, look at all this cool tech I've got in my brain. It's supposed to be like, hey, look how fucked up things are. Hey, look how messed up things are. Hey, what are we going to do about how messed up things are? And so Umarangi actually means red sky. And so Umarangi generation is the red sky generation or the basically the generation of people that are inheriting the earth as it's falling apart, as the skies are red. And that's referencing the wildfires in Australia that were really bad. Uh, I think it was that a year ago, two years ago, maybe now. Last, just last year. I mean, it was. Yeah, I mean, I guess actually, I, think I, think they, was I think it was 2020 even. Like, yeah. 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 I mean, it's not yeah. it's not like a problem that's gone away. Right. And right. so, you know, but in the game, what you're essentially doing is you're you're photographing for different things. So it's sort of like a uh, hunt for these different items that you need to photograph. But at the same time, it's this way of taking in this detailed landscape and it's in this kind of lo-fi 3D um, that I want to say, by the way, is like a, a trend I'm seeing in a certain kind of anti-capitalist indie game. I'm also thinking of the game Sludge Life, which you can get from Epic Game Store for free, which has a VCR filter mode. Uh, and that makes it look very similar to Umarangi Generation. But I'm really digging this game. It's got a kind of like acid jazz punk uh, soundtrack that's also just worth putting on, even if you don't want to play it. Uh, and as you go through it, you're starting to get this narrative of occupation, of indigenous people being sort of put under the boot heels of fascists. And it really is an anti-fascist video game in which your primary way of interacting is just a camera and you collect different kinds of cameras and you have different bonus objectives and stuff, different angles for shots you might go for. And it's just, I don't know, it's chill. And at the same time, it makes you take in like that we are already living in ruins and that that's not going away anytime soon and what to do about it, what we're going to do about it. It's also just like, and the developers talked about this. It's not tragic. It's not a tragic game. It doesn't try to be. You see a bunch of like hip kids with their boom boxes and graffiti and stuff, and they're just kind of hanging out. And one of my favorite little mechanics is you can go up to your, these people who are labeled as your friends and change their posture or their gestures they're making just with a, I think, pressing the E button. Um, I think it's coming out to Switch at some point soon, but right now it's just on Steam. But that's the game I really wanted to talk about. And I'm going to write about it a little bit for... Uh, the indie cyberpunks game curated list that Nate, uh, Dawn, and I are doing for the site. So you probably see it in there. But that's the game I wanted to mostly talk about. The other game I'm talking, you know, I just want to like briefly talk about is I'm playing Spider-Man Miles Morales. I know Roger, you are too. We're going to be podcasting about that sometime in December. What do you What are you thinking about it? It's a fun game, right? I mean, it's really fun, and I like. You know, it took you to sort of point it out to me, but. I think I was so uh, frustrated with the price point that I kind of went in like with kind of a grumpy feeling to it where I'm like, this is just a DLC. This is just the, you know, and I think that they've actually done a lot of work, um, like you said, uh, in our conversation, streamlining 
uh, a lot of things that didn't work as well in the first Spider-Man, Marvel Spider-Man game. Um, and I'm enjoying it. I think I'm about 50% of the way through it. I love the story. I love, there's nothing really new. I mean, in some ways, um, you know, they're taking, uh, you know, all of the things that the character of Miles Morales opens up for them. And it's something they did in, 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 in the film into the spider verse, but like, you know, the sort of, uh, the music, um, that he listens to, um, the fact that he's half, uh, black, half Hispanic and his mother speaks Spanish and it's just normal, right? It's just, she just sorts of brings it, puts it into the conversation. And, um, it's just, a, it's just a really interesting, um, shift, I think, in terms of like how comics traditionally have ta- have told their stories. So. Yeah. I mean, the, it's a game that I have to admit, I was a little ambivalent about playing it. I've been a little burnt out on the 3D uh, third-person action games a bit, and I I like Sony games, but I've played a lot of them this year. Going to, you know, I played Ghost of Tsushima. I played Last of Us Part Two, and while they're you know these are very different games in tone, there's a kind of mechanical consistency across all of the Sony studio games. Um, and I know Insomniac was only has only been a Sony studio for about a year now, but still, there's a reason why they bought them. But I have to admit, as soon as I started swinging through New York, I was just like smiling. I literally felt like a smile, like <laughs> yeah. creep up my face almost inadvertently. And I, was I mean, like, we all Aw. we've all wanted to do that. I mean, it's just a, it's a reality, right? I mean, you know, especially if you're looking for a cab, too. You know, like <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel like I have no like critical objectivity when it comes to like web swinging or anything in any game. Like I I watched I looked at this like top twenty Spider Man games and people were. Uh, people were really sort of criticizing the old Sega Genesis game, Spider-Man versus the Kingpin, which was one of my favorite games when it came out. And mostly because of the web swinging, because that was the first time I had ever seen anything even close to like what I had imagined web swinging to be like when I read the comics. And, um, I was so mad that they, that they criticized that. I mean, it's not, it's not a perfect game by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, the swinging, it's just, um, amazing and it's that's true of the two uh marvel's spider-man games i think the miles morales one i think is just a lot even better i think in in the acrobatics i just love the fact that miles swings slightly different than peter like peter's so much more uh certain and and acrobatic and miles is kind of like awkward and kind of like it looks like he's gonna fall at any moment but then he recovers and um, I just like those little bits of, of detail that they put into it. So. so right now I've been playing um, the combination visual novel slash mech brawler Extreme Meat Punks Forever by Heather Flowers. <laughs> and <laughs> it is... I'm sorry, that title is amazing. To it me. is. It is one of the best ever titled games. And it really, like, it's hard to live up to a title like that, and it really does. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those games that has a lot, a lot of... of like good notoriety in in indie gaming circles. Uh, I I think a lot of folks have probably already played it are probably playing through the the second part which released relatively recently. 
um, right now. So it is, so you're a group of queer mech pilots sort of rumbling through a dusty, arid landscape that I imagine is somewhere in a kind of post-apocalyptic American Southwest. Maybe it's not, but that's that's what I get um, sort of from it. And speaking of anti-fascist games, um, like uh, like Christian was talking about, the the only enemies that you fight, they're just called uh, fash, like the fash, and 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 someone someone in your crew will eventually say something like, "Oh no, a fash," and then like <laughs> that'll start the the combat. Um, I mean, it's kind of like how we talk online, but yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. and and. And then, so there's, there's this, what I really, really love about it. There's so many things to love about this game. Um, but something that I really appreciate about it is that it has at its core, a real kind of punk DIY aesthetic, um, where the characters in the visual novel parts are are rendered really well the 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 artwork in the characters is expressive and emotive and um you can you can uh really get a a really great image of who they are from the images but it'll be over a background that's like all ascii art like it the like the whole background um will be laid behind it and it's all just these figures these little ascii shapes um, and so there's obviously a very big difference between kind of the combat part and the visual novel part, the combat you also, um, so the mechs that you pilot are, are not robots. They are, um, well, they're robots, but they're flesh robots and, and you fill them up. I've been at, accused of that sometimes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so it's, it's a game Really, it's it, it, yeah. It's a game for for the days when you feel like a flesh robot. It, it's it's and and that like maybe it's okay. Like it's a game about feeling okay uh, about about that sort of. I think we've got our episode title. <laughs> yes. <laughs> days when you feel like a flesh robot. Yes. <laughs> Those yes. are actually on my best days. I mean, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, really. I strive for that. It is. So, yes, it is. And yes. and but see, that's the beauty of it. That's the secondary. Like the next thing I was I was thinking about is um, that it takes that, even though we already agreed that cyberpunk is supposed to be dystopian and supposed to be about how it's all bad and not just about how like cool your 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 bionic arm is, but but like to take cyberpunk and make it meat punk and situate it sort of in this in this fleshly sort of, I don't want to say gross because it's not gross, but but to, it's not like the whole point is that you can enjoy the yeah any any kind of embodiment that you feel like you need to enjoy your experience in this moment, and then you're I'm like, all for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah, 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 and and then you like roll up into the gas station, but it's a blood station, and there's troughs of blood where you have to take out your blood shovel and like shovel the blood into your mech in order to make it move again. Wow. Um, yeah, which which is and. Uh, I, I need to emphasize, though, is all rendered in visual, like in text, because it's a visual novel and ASCII art. So it's a very, 
very cool game that has a lot of um just it's its own special energy that I don't really get from playing anything else but also what I was going to say about going from sort of playing on cyberpunk into being meat punk is this idea that um there's there's a future where it's not uh, sleek and 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 st- sort of stainless steel cyborgs that bring about the the end of the world. It's it's instead this place where you're inhabiting sort of the the these monstrous fleshy bodies and and like we had in a lot of that that series that you and I edited together, Chris. You kind of you you get to enjoy sort of being this meat monster that also walks around and literally punches fascists off of cliffs. Oh um, man, that's that's like my ideal existence, basically. <laughs> like you know, um, but I, I, I'm thinking about the ways in which uh, you know William Gibson's trilogy meat was always the state that you didn't want to be in, right? Like yeah, you know, the, 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 in the Neuromancer trilogy, and that that it's kind of cool to re, you know to, to reclaim meat, right? Like we're we're not jacking out of meat, we're jacking into meat, you know? Like yeah, we're, we're, we're yeah we're we're asserting the value of meat. So, yeah, I think yeah. we just got our explicit rating. You can just like, like click on the links later and I have some videos for sale. So yeah, oh, boy. good, yeah. good. Yeah. See, yes. we agreed earlier. I thought we agreed earlier that I was going to be the bad boy of this podcast. Uh, oh, and, you, and, and... honey. Yeah. All right. No, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> can, can I say also, there's another, since, since we've earned that rating, um, yes. There's there's one of my favorite things that you can download on itch is the meat punk manifesto, which is not a game. It is a PDF file um, that the that Heather Flowers, the, the game developer made. And it has some really good lines on it. Like, um, I think I think item number two is subtlety is for fuckers. And it's just like, now there we go. We really got the <laughs> Chris really got our, the mature rating now. now. Yes, exactly. Chris now we now. officially have. Chris already said it once. I knew as soon as we got Chris on here. Uh, yeah, it's true. And then then Nate and I together is just really like you know that, that, that's like mayhem Inc. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's a bad deal. Um, that game yes. sounds great. I've had it since uh, it was included. I want to say in that uh, racial justice itch bundle. HIO bundle and I've had it even downloaded but I just haven't played it yet and I have to admit part of my reluctance is I'm I have tried so many different visual novels of various types and never got into it but I'm wondering if this might be an exception because there is some kind of uh, mechanical combat mode is there some depth to that is it like a tactical sort of battle um no not at all uh I would say that by and large like again like I said, kind of DIY to to the extreme. The well, not the extreme, like to in a cool way. But the combat is very like each of the different mechs that you can select has a different um, sort of skill set and and has a unique special attack and a unique sort of persistent ability like one will be faster than the others one can take more hits than the others but i would so that there's an amount of variety there but by and large i mean your goal in most combat scenarios is going to be to knock the other 
group off of a cliff and all of the all of the combats that i've been in so far have been next to cliffs which suggests kind of a, a pattern i i think um which is not foolish fascists yeah the, the <laughs> foolish fascists they're always starting fights on cliffs and that's really a problem for well, them we did see that that trump boat rally right I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. that's what i was thinking about that's what I was about. So, so what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the adding combat to it does not make it less of a visual novel, but it does make it its own like unique, separate little thing. And I would say, and this is not to sort of you know complain about itch because I almost everything I play comes from there. But as a person who spends a lot of time sort of surfing or, or diving into the sea that is itch.io, right? And all of the options uh, that, that are available to you there. Um, this is one that is really, really, really worth grabbing if, if you haven't, uh, haven't already. Um, it's, it's a really neat one. And I mean, there, there are new uh, episodes coming out as well. And then the other, I'm just going to talk really, really briefly about it just because it had a sort of a re-release uh, this year and it, the re-release was kind of a surprise. It was fun. Um, but um, the Amanita game, Amanita has done, I mean, all kinds of great uh, stuff. I think their most recent title was called Creeks. They've done a lot of really cool hand-drawn uh, art stuff. They're a, they're a Czech studio. Um, and their game, Samarost 2, uh, just had a re-release this year, and it is a um, well, an update, really, uh, but but a, a significant one. Um, it is a point-and-click uh, surrealist adventure um, where you're. Uh, I mean, it's kind of cutesy, like you're a little gnome who goes to sort of save your dog from from aliens, but it, you spend all of your time, most of your time, kind of underground uh, in these places where there are bugs and spiders and like icky gooey stuff uh that, that's really fun to kind of play play in and play with also i did a little research ahead of time which is why i still wanted to sort of blow ahead and and, and keep talking um and and a samarost which i'm saying wrong but it'd sound worse if i tried to say it right uh in in check is actually um it sort of it sort of translates to self-made and what it actually means is sort of the phenomenon when you find like a stick or a root or a part of a tree that resembles kind of a face or something like that and a lot of the art in the game um is based around this idea this sort of woody kind of mossy really cool. yeah yeah, yeah uh, uh, attack kind of thing um, and it would also be really cool for fans of, uh, if you know, the stop motion filmmaker, Jan Svankmeyer, he was also Czech and there is a certain resonance there in, in aesthetics. And is this a puzzle game? Yes. Yes. Right? Very much. So a point and click kind of puzzle it out, figure out, I would say that, um, a nice thing about it as, as point and clicks go, um, 
which a lot of them do, but some don't. The the cursor changes when you hover over something that you can interact with. So it's not just like a free for all, like click on every single thing in the room and hopes, you know, hope to God something happens. It's it's like pixel hunt. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There are clearly sort of five or six things. And you know that if you can get them all to interact with each other in a certain way, you'll you'll solve the the puzzle and you don't have to worry about the other stuff but it's still got some challenge to it i i have been stuck for for a little bit in 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 a couple different rooms in that game i remember seeing the art style i don't think i've played any of their games but i've definitely checked them out just because the art style is so captivating that when you pass over it on like gog or something it just catches your eye uh it makes me want to check it out yeah they're really cool they're also really hard i just want to i just want to uh pull this all together and mention that Nate is really into games that involve meat or icky gooey things. <laughs> so that is a hundred percent true. That is a hundred percent true. If you have a game about like picking your nose and eating the boogers, like I am ready for that. I am ready for that game. I hear that's like, you know, the, the next uh, big triple A that, you know, Xbox is <laughs> Assassin's <laughs> Creed. Yeah. Pick your, your nose. nose. <laughs> Assassin's They've actually Creed. gone everywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> the Templars have infected your nose. Oh my god! <laughs> Whoops! I the, slipped. The animus is no longer actually taking you back in time. It's just like shrinking you down to the you know magic school bus you know episode <laughs> where you go bus. up you know a student's nose and tour the yes. human body. Yes. That's really, that exactly. somebody needs to go there. Yeah, Assassin's Creed, your body. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> No, All no, right, no. But before they decide not to let us on any podcast uh, platform <laughs> Ever. in general. Wait, can I, wait, a, no, I have one, one yes. last idea. Wait, Jump one last don't one. Let him, don't let them. All right. One yeah, last yeah. one. One All last right, one. Break the podcast. One last one. Resident Evil, but you're the virus. <laughs> I okay. can actually see that. I can, I can see that. that. I'm, I'm trying it. to imagine whether or not there is just like a 2D map. Are you just drawing vectors between nodes? Or <laughs> is there like a physics component here? All right. I, I've, had X's, I've had X's call me a T-virus, so I don't see what the issue is. Oh, <laughs> yes. All right. All right. Transitioning from group therapy. <laughs> yes. Let's hit our special topic of the week. And we're going to talk about game difficulty, right? Um, we're going to talk about... You know, everything from different kinds of difficulty in games to difficulty modes, easy versus hard versus nightmare. I want to say Doom is that first game that really popularized naming the different difficulty modes. So you get your nightmare, you get your, you know, too easy uh, mode, etc. So why don't we start off by talking about maybe the hardest games we've ever played? So does anybody have anything that just pops to mind, like a game that really either stumped you or that like really gave you a rough time? Well, you know, I know I know a number of you play the the sort of Soulsborne, you know, style games, and and uh, I I, uh, I I I tried. Uh, uh, I've tried uh, Bloodborne for uh, about five hours one day, uh, and and I stopped after the first uh, attempt at, at playing that game, and it just was not going for me. So, uh, uh, and I'm sure there there are other people who who know how to handle that, and and I know there are people who know how to handle that, but I'm I've really been uncoordinated since you know basically since I was uh, you know originally on this planet and so like it just like like games that really like like go towards hard I have a real difficult time with so yeah 
Hmm. I it's interesting. I I I was sort of thinking through mine, and I wouldn't put. I think I would put like I don't remember if you all remember when they rebooted Ninja Gaiden, like in the early two thousands, and uh, those games for me were like I didn't know what to do, and I was a I was a big fan of like the old school side scroller Ninja Gaidens, um, and did pretty well in them, but like for for whatever reason. I had a really hard time with uh, the reboot. Um, and I wonder, so what's interesting is like, um, I hear what you're saying, Chris, and I think that um, definitely like those types of games, the Soulsborne games are, are for a particular type of um, player, right? Like, um, and it, it's fascinating because like, I didn't play the Soulsborne games for a long time, mostly because I was nervous about their difficulty um and and in fact like at one point i i quit um for about a month um at the at the famously difficult uh fight uh uh but between uh you and ornstein and smau in in dark souls um but i think it's i think it's interesting because um it's i would i would i would challenge the idea i think I have a hard time, like, I don't know exactly how I would characterize it, but it's not quite difficult. I think it is, it is difficult. So I'll, I'll, I'll give it that, but like, uh, it's, yeah, it's more like, so, so Christian, you were going to talk about the three different kinds of difficulty that, uh, that Patrick had mentioned in his book, right? The, yeah, so we're interviewing, uh, game studies scholar Patrick Jagoda, who's at University of Chicago. We're going to be interviewing him, I think, this Friday. And he outlines three different modes of difficulty that are maybe just like worth throwing out there. He talks about mechanical difficulty, which we know all the way back you know, to arcade games in the 70s or the 80s. He talks about interpretive difficulty, which is the kind of things that maybe Nate's talking about you know, when he talks about point-and-click adventures and trying to figure out which items go with which, but also all, all kinds of different interpretive difficulty in puzzle games, but also in certain kinds of narrative games. And then he talks about affective difficulty, and I wonder if that's where you're going to go, Roger. Yeah, Which is this totally. notion of affective difficulty. And maybe you have you read that part yet? I can't remember if you've got there yet. Um, I mean, I'm on. I'm reading the chapter on difficulty right now, but I mean, I don't know what games he lists as being under that if any but um definitely there is a kind of sense in which Soulsborne games are more than there they definitely have a kind of mechanical difficulty to them i won't i won't dismiss that entirely but i feel that the difficulty more is like emotional and it's more effective it's more about um feeling your way through the game because i would say even the first dark souls the thing that's so strange about it when I started playing it, is that it's a very sort of methodical game. You have to mm-hmm. be very careful when that's, you walk that's, through a space. That's what I've um, been told is it's about rhythm and care um, as much as anything else. With them. Yeah. yeah. And uh, especially when it's so funny, I remember going through any time I played that game when I went to a new, a new, uh, a new level, um, a new space, I would, I guess, um, is you, you get really comfortable with the space with knowing where the enemies are, um, knowing where everything is and kind of working through it. And once you get into a new space, it's like you're freaking out. Like I was, I would freak out in new spaces and I would, it would just be like, it would be inching forward 
with my shield in front of me the whole time. And one of the things that was really difficult, I know, when I started Bloodborne was the fact that there was no shield. There was nothing to protect you. And so you had to dodge. And I, I was really bad at dodging um, before I played. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. before yeah. I played uh, Bloodborne. And so the other thing that I would say about Soulsborne game is that despite their difficulty, emotional, mechanical, they're very good at teaching you how to play the game. And That's so interesting. Uh, they will, uh, you know, first levels of, of, of these games are, are sort of famous for introducing you to, uh, monsters that are difficult, but they're not, uh, impossible. Mm-hmm. They're difficult, mm-hmm. but they're not impossible. And once you learn sort of the mechanics of defeating these monsters, you'll see variations on different types of ways that these, these games can, can, or the Soulsborne games will make you, will stretch your, mm-hmm. your skills but mm-hmm. I, it, they're they're very pedagogical in an interesting way. They're just that's, they're teaching you things. So. That's interesting because one of my readings of them when they first started appearing was it was right after GamerGate that they really had their big sort of moment, and it it felt like a way of reasserting hardcore gaming as opposed to casual gaming. And I remember the I remember when things got so casual. I remember having a, a copy of Prince of Persia and like you know Orientalism, anybody, but you know, um, uh, but you know that that that, that I remember playing that game, and you actually literally couldn't die. Because they had made it so easy, you know, like like, and and I and I know the rewind you know, mechanic, right? Right, exactly, yeah. And so Soulsborne, like, you know, those games were were really an attempt to sort of re restart that whole thing. But it felt weird because it felt, and I don't think this is probably a coincidence, but it felt like it part played out as part of the cultural landscape that it became a way for hardcore gamers to sort of gather around and say, "These are our games, and they're hard." You know, um, although it's interesting that there's the pedagogical dimension of that. Maybe that's an unfair reading of it um, because I I never actually played them. Um, I think partly it's it. I think it is. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things, though, that's really interesting about that. I don't know. I think there if you if you go into the fandom of of Dark Souls and and Bloodborne and all these games, you definitely will find those kinds of hardcore gamers who are like, you don't belong here. We're the real. This is where the real. I mean, and the other thing that they do, which is really frustrating, is like you'll get halfway through the game and defeat this really powerful boss and then they'll be like this is where the game really begins and i'm like what have i been doing for the past 60 hours <laughs> you know <laughs> it starts getting good after 30 or 40 hours don't worry <laughs> what so I everybody wants to do. um but i would yeah. also say that there is a like probably the more i would say that the more the the more more of the fans of that series uh, are interested in not sort of trolling. I mean, you do find mm-hmm. trolls, but um, right. they, they're You'll interested in helping everywhere. you yeah. out and right. and congratulating you. So, so one of the things I really love about Dark Souls is that you have the system where there you can write notes to each other online, and you don't know where these notes come from. Right. Um, but sometimes they'll have a vague clue about the boss, I that. or yeah. yeah, or they'll at the after you defeat a boss, it'll be like, "Great job, you did really good," and it's. And it's that kind of thing that I really appreciated about, mm-hmm. especially the early uh, Soulsborne uh, fandom. And then also, I think this changed a lot, uh, probably around Dark Souls 3, but it used to be like uh, they have play PB, PB, PvP in that. And um, usually I don't like multiplayer, but there was a kind of like with, with Dark Souls, there was a kind of... Um, a weird chivalry to it where like you would have to like you're not supposed to like uh very early on sort of metagaming rules that were kind of generally known uh if you went to the message boards like you couldn't um refill your health for instance right 
or you're supposed to bow or signal that you're ready before fighting. Um, and so like, I really appreciated all of that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, there definitely is a kind of, there definitely was a kind of hardcore gaming aspect to it, but I, I sense that it was, it was, you know, as, as people got into it, there were, there were more nuances about mm -hmm. the fandom than that. So that makes sense. I actually had, had a friend who was really into it and it's also really into BDSM and he described it very much as like being a bottom in a, you know, yeah. in, in a very exacting, but loving, uh, uh, relationship, you know? And the, yeah, yeah. There so, are yeah. multiple. And the thing that, the thing that got me into it, ultimately there are multiple articles online talking about how it actually mimics depression and ah, the states of depression and how Dark Souls allowed various people who were struggling with depression yeah. to, uh, it sort of helped them with their own, with their illness, wow, to wrestle wow. with their illness. That's um, fascinating. Yeah. And, and so that's what I was going to kind of say about them was like, there's a sense of playing them where you come to embrace your death, right? Mm -hmm. Like where you mm -hmm. come to sort of. Mm -hmm. And, and celebrate, what I really like about playing Dark Souls is being able to celebrate like small, sometimes even big, big depending on how long you've been playing and, and how far you are between save points, but like failures, like th to be able to experience failure in a safe space, like is, is something <laughs> that, 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 that the Dark Souls games do that you don't all like get to do you know in in every day so there's a kind of anti-mastery about yeah i mean depending yeah. on how you do it i mean there's yeah. definitely a sense in which yeah. it's annoying to die over and over and over again right. like <laughs> right. it is right. but there's also a kind of rhythm you can almost get into especially like roger like you were saying like you get used to the same place right you get used to being in this place and so you get almost into a zone once you kind of have your your strategy worked out and you you get you figure out the thing you're gonna do that you just know you need to execute it right in order right. to get past. Right. And once you're in that zone, as you fail, like as the failures kind of kind of mount up, it almost becomes like a like a kind of dance or something. Um yeah. that that yeah. is is a little mesmerizing. You know that's fascinating. I was gonna say this makes me think of uh Super Meat Boy and and you know, the way in which failure is integrated into that game. And part of that is just that the single screen, for the most part, levels enable like quick reloading. And so each death feels like it's a sort of lightweight thing, but the levels are difficult and they get progressively more difficult. And you're almost never going to get it at the first shot unless you're like learning to speed run these things. And it leaves, you literally leave these blood trails that, you know, trace your past journeys and then you can replay it. And the sense of like a history of failure and of allowing you to not just embrace that difficulty, but to kind of learn through it is something that I really appreciate. And I do think, you know, Chris was marking that historical moment that I want to say happens in the early to mid 2000s. It has a lot to do actually with like the budget of games ballooning at that same time period in which games just become by default, relatively easy. The game over, the very concept of a game over becomes relatively obsolete. Um, and you see these different responses. Roguelikes are one response to that. Uh, the Soulsborne games are another response to that. These like indie arcade games that came out starting in like 2006, 2007 and really have continued to proliferate. 
like Super Meat Boy or another. And it's interesting because it is like Nate was saying, it's about learning from failure. And we like failure. I mean, failure sucks, but it doesn't suck in and of itself. It sucks because usually when we have an opportunity to fail, we're judged for it. And not only are we judged for it, but there are like potentially significant consequences, right? And even when there aren't going to be significant consequences, we nonetheless imagine there's going to be. And so you're just like, I don't know about you guys. I'm going to imagine we're all a bunch of anxious people. And I'm going to take that. Like, I mean, I was probably... going to compare what you said about Soulsburn to grad school, which all of us have been through on some level or another. But, you know, but, you know that's neither here nor there. Yes. Yeah, so. no, it, it is that like you spend so much time in your own head at the like, what are the consequences of this? And, you know, say what you want about like really hard games, which to be honest, are not always my cup of tea. Right. But at the very least, you know that like your salary doesn't depend on it. <laughs> you know, like, you know, nobody's going to be like, right. for shame, for shame. Like, unless, <laughs> unless you're on a message board, right? <laughs> and, and then somebody will inevitably type get good or something. Question, um, has anyone, maybe not. Has anyone in academia responded to something you did with for shame, for shame? <laughs> Roger, all the time, all the time. Remind me to tell you about my preliminary exams at some point which oh, i tried okay. to make a joke which was not received by my advisor very well responded, well one of us has a phd and one of us does not oh my god uh, and, I, and i love this man to death um, that's hilarious know, nonetheless it's funny i sort of re- i read that moment a little differently it was right when i got back into gaming and i think the the, the game uh uh, the, the game companies were really, tr- this was when like games were actually starting to rival movies as like the form of entertainment. And they were trying to really bring all kinds of casual, casual gamers in. And I think that strategy backfired on a certain level, right? Like, I mean, they, they tried to bring all these casual gamers in, but like what people want from a casual game and what they want from a game where you're like, you know, like, you know, just deeply invested, uh, you know, and, and, and ready to die and ready to die a, a, a thousand ignominious deaths, you know, like, I mean, the, the, those are different games, you know, like, and, and and that and people want different things sometimes out of them, you know. Although I, I I still kind of miss the idea of floating through a game of like you know being able to like battle lightly and 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 feel like I'm I'm sort of mostly you know that's kind of why I'm enjoying playing uh, Borderlands because those games aren't just aren't that hard, you know. Like they're just not that you know like um. Hmm? I think that like it's really interesting how like I'm so into Soulsborne and yet. I like with Wasteland, I went for easy. Like, I don't mm-hmm. even care. Like, when I'm in an RPG, like, I just mm-hmm. want the story. I want the story and I want to get totally, loot. totally. That's just yeah, all I yeah. want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And totally. so it's, yeah. and so it's really interesting that, like, you know, I think it is a question of, like, what are you looking for in mm-hmm. your gaming experience? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also partly that, like, you know, I don't know. I, I'm at the point where I have a million things. And whenever I get a chance to game, I'm, like, putting everything else on hold. And I'm, like, I should also be looking at films. And I should also be reading books. And, you know, and so I'm, like, the idea of, like, playing the same damn scene, like, 20 times, I'm just, like, I cannot afford this right now. Uh, and so that's its own weird thing. Like, that's you know, but, but yeah, so, yeah. Brian Rejack and I, you know, Brian, who also writes for the site, uh, and who did our uh, Ghost to Tsushima spoiler cast with uh, Roger and I, you know, we both wrote about uh, Ghost Runner, this recent cyberpunk first-person platforming game for the site, and I wrote up Impressions, and it was a good thing I wrote the Impressions, because I did not finish that game. Uh, and then Brian, <laughs> Brian, whose, you know, manual dexterity exceeds my own. Uh, I, I, you know, he's a, he's a colleague in the same, you know, university that we're both uh, work at, and, and uh 
like I've watched him game. The man is really, really good. Like he's just got he's got skills for this. So yeah, yeah, no, so, no, and yeah. And, it, and it was clear to me when we were having this conversation because Ghost Runner by any standard is a hard game because first of all, first person platforming is just a thing that's difficult for developers to nail because if you're not seeing the body of your player character, that just adds a difficulty factor on its own. Um, and this game, to its credit, it reloaded extremely fast and so death didn't feel too punishing in that respect but on the other hand it also didn't have manual saves and it didn't it had checkpoints but if you exited out of the game you had to go back to the beginning of the level and the levels even if you were you know pretty quickly skipping from one thing to the next you know you would it would take you 45 minutes minimum to get that. And part of why I brought bring this up is because I also think about just the way in which difficulty relates to where you're at in your own life at a given moment. So for me, gaming usually happens between about 5.30 a.m. and 7.30 or 8 a.m. if I'm lucky, because that's when my like toddler is still asleep. Uh, that's when I can have the basement to myself uh and there's a like a weird kind of pressure that goes on there to make a certain amount of progress in a given amount of time because i know i have such a finite amount of time especially because we're now writing for the site and stuff you know so, yeah yeah, yeah. No, it's that's true. a big pain i was joking thanks for turning my my avocation into a vocation man yeah i know so, yeah. i was no joking anymore <laughs> yeah exactly well this is actually what this is why we started the site is you know roger and i wanted to just ruin as many people's lives as possible i really and did make that. sure I, even their sources of pleasure were downers um, you're on pace i actually good. was i actually was nervous that i wouldn't finish wasteland 3 before recording this podcast mm-hmm. like i was really nervous but good thing it ended fast so <laughs> yeah, this, this is why you have to not commit to like longer games. This is why your next spoiler cast is on uh, Miles Morales, which is like you know ten hours if you stretch it. But yeah, there there is something about difficulty fits or how it fits or doesn't fit into your life at a given moment, and like the mood you can be in. Like I can play a difficult game, but I definitely have to be in a headspace that's very specific. On the flip side, if a game's too easy. I also have to be in a specific headspace. Like otherwise I just like feel sort of bored and drift away yeah. from it. Yeah. I remember playing Fable 2 and, and that feeling like so super easy. But but the kind of the point of the game was just kind of to explore the space and to and to build your, you know, your, your the town and build all the different aspects of it. Um and then I, I remember the sort of flip side though with of uh in Resident you know, I remember playing Resident Evil 4 and there's this scene uh, but some of you may remember who played it. Nate, I'm sure you remember this, but uh, there's that scene where you're like it's suspended in a cage over a pit and there's like a monster in each part of the cage. And one of the difficulty things, difficult things with Capcom games is that the controls basically suck, right? So like, like you're, you're not only fighting your own inability and I'm incredibly uncoordinated. I have been my whole life, but like it's, you know, in addition to my lack of coordination, the controls just actually fucking suck. And like the, the perspective is weird and like, you know, um, uh, and so I remember playing this for like three or four hours in the basement. I, st- I think I was trying to go to sleep with, uh, my, uh, partner at the time, uh, uh, 
and uh, um, uh, and uh, she she had fallen asleep. And I was like, you know what? I can't sleep. I'm going to go down and play. At about five in the morning, she came down and she's like, are you done yet? Because I had I'd gotten out of that cage situation. Uh, and, uh, and 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 she was a very, she was a wonderful person who's no longer with us. But like, uh, uh, but uh, but, she, you know, and she was always very tolerant of my gaming. But she was like, dude, you need to go to sleep. But uh, I got out of the cage situation and. Uh, um, uh, and, and as I, I had no health, there were no herbs. You get out of the cage situation after three hours of playing this like stupid, uh, you know, re- repetitively the stupid thing. And you wind up, there's another monster right there. And it's a huge, like another boss. And I'm like, this is just wrong. Uh, but I did finally beat it. I like went to sleep at six that morning. That was fun. So, yeah. <laughs> and there, isn't there something about the idea that like it exists the fact that it exists means that it must be beatable. Totally. And yes. the, and therefore the the dangerous corollary there is that therefore I will be the one to beat it. Like <laughs> and, and that's the problem. Which was one thing when it was like kids on a playground and another thing when you can watch like a hundred YouTube videos of somebody beating it faster and faster and faster, right? And you're just like Totally. Does anybody remember the bun there was an old bungee game? Uh I forgot about this until just now, but there was an old bungee game. I can't remember, it was a dungeon crawler. Uh and it was and uh the at the end they threw every creature in the whole dungeon at you in one room. Uh, uh, and I can't remember what it was, but it was like basically set up not you could not win this game. It was set up to be fundamentally impossible. Um, so yeah, yeah. So one of my one of my favorite games in recent years uh, is Yokotaro's Near Automata. Uh, and the end of that game, and I don't think this is really too much of a spoiler because it's such a weird mechanical thing. But the end of that game, and you have to go through like five endings, I think, to get here is a credit sequence that turns itself into a game mechanic. It basically becomes a, sh- a shmup, a shoot 'em up uh, and you have to blow up the credits. Basically, you have to destroy the credits, but it actually becomes too difficult to beat. And so what happens is that you get the help of other players who have sacrificed their save games to contribute to helping you. Uh, destroy the credits and that when you actually manage to beat it it asks you do you want to help another person by deleting your save game and if you say yes it does it deletes your save game from your machine and that's that like you can't go back and replay it there's no new game plus for you but you know that you're going to help somebody else and there's a theoretical moment which maybe has already occurred because it's been a while since i've played it where you know maybe people have stopped playing it and you just can't get past the credits, right? Because not enough people have contributed to that. And that level of, I mean, that's so interesting to me because difficulty, we haven't talked about multiplayer difficulty yet, but the, the type of difficulty that's often associated with multiplayer is that kind of zero-sum game where, you know, it's not hell as other people, it's difficulty as other people, right? <laughs> it's like the other person is the difficult factor, so let's eliminate that person to smooth things out towards victory. And this is the reverse of that, right? Like the saving grace is other people in that instance. Yeah, that's really cool. I really, really like that. I think they... Weren't the end credits for the first Super Smash Brothers like that too? Where you had to shoot at the credits? The 64 version? Was it the 64 or the GameCube one? One of them Might had shooting at the GameCube. credits. One of them had shooting at the credits. But I also think that's a really neat... Tw- because I have always hated 
multiplayer games, specifically online multiplayer games for that reason. It's because, and I, I, I'm, I'm never good enough. Like even, even on games that have just come out, that have just come out, I am just not good enough to play them in a way that they are fun. And I think there's a difference between dying a whole bunch by myself in Dark Souls and being frustrated, but there's still a part of me that's like, I'm choosing to do this and it's fun. When it's not fun anymore, it's just not like, it's it's not worth it. It's not worth it to me. After, no, after I, I feel like I'm screwing up in high school baseball again. I'm going to get beaten <laughs> up later. You know, like, it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's not good. So, yeah. Um, I, I'm reminded of uh, what you just talked about, uh, Christian, of uh, this game, uh, the Jason Rohrer game, One Hour, One Life. I don't know if y'all played it, but um it's really fascinating i don't i actually don't know if people are still playing it so it may not work but it's a massively multiplayer game where you're basically building a civilization and you start as a baby right and the thing that's really fascinating about it is like people have to take care of you because you're a baby in the beginning and if they don't take care of you you die like you just die and then you come back and it's just you keep dying and coming back until somebody like takes you and suckles you on, her, on their breast or and then and then eventually you're you have to like you have to um, work to to get food. Right. Or or you'll starve and die like and it's just this weird kind of kind of um, multiplayer experiment in uh, evolution almost. And and that I think puts together this kind of like collaborative but then also a competitive uh, model of multiplayer in a way that I haven't seen other games do. That's really interesting. I mean, one of the things that I don't know if we'll touch on, I'm not sure if any of us have really played this genre very much, but you know, there's the difficulty of survival games. And I feel like the survival game has really had a kind of a renaissance over the past five years or so, especially uh, from smaller studios in particular. And I think a lot of that has to do with the ability for survival games to kind of stretch assets a long way, um, just by nature of the kind of repetition involved and the duration, the endurance that's required in a lot of these games. Um, But there's something about like the vulnerability that survival games speak to. And I've written on this for the site a little bit. I think Chris, you have too. I think I think all of us actually have written to some degree about vulnerability in gaming for the site when you know at least touched on it. And I think that's one of the things about difficulty that we don't always think about because I think when we think gaming difficulty we immediately go mechanical difficulty. But there's also the difficulty of exposing yourself of you know not in a Jeffrey Tubin way but in the uh, just like <laughs> sorry bad New Yorker joke uh, which immediately should make everybody turn this podcast off. Goodbye. No but it's a difficulty of like letting yourself be like raw and emotional to something and so like you know I would say the most difficult game but also one of the most cathartic games I've played in recent years is a game that doesn't even really have a fail state as far as I remember maybe it has one but it's so difficult to even attain that that's almost harder than not failing Um, and that's uh, what remains of Edith Finch which is you know your kind of classical walking sim uh, the one that I think is uh, rich for the amount of mechanical or game mechanic diversity it has in it Uh, and I know a lot of people just will cite that this is a difficult game to play through and a lot of people cite uh, the baby in the bathtub scene, which admittedly is quite difficult, 
But for me, it was the sort of entire experience of it. And I'll say that, you know, when I was playing that, it came out the same year my mother passed away uh, pretty unexpectedly, right? And like, I honestly actively avoided anything to do with death or talking about death or reading about death as much as I could within a career where I teach literature. Uh, and, you know, if if it's a thing you teach at an English course, it's probably a thing that has death involved in it in some manner. Uh, but I avoided it. And for some reason, I played that game. I have no idea why. I don't know why I found it. I don't know why. If it was just cheap, I was like, oh, it's a $20 game. But that was a game that like was hard to get through. I mean, a lot of people, I think, played in one sitting. I played it in several sittings. And it left me raw for days. But it was also a kind of difficulty that I found immensely rewarding. And so maybe we could close out the section on difficulty by just like talking about like, when have you found difficulty really rewarding? I know Roger, for you, the Soulsborne games have been really important as a kind of meditative practice. Yeah. I mean, I would say um, it was probably um, a confluence of a lot of things in my life. Uh, I was going through tenure at the time <laughs> that'll do it right yeah <laughs> when you're I discovering going... these games you're saying <laughs> yeah um and uh yeah like it was probably 2016 2017 that was going on i was feeling very like powerless you know and um one of the things that i think is so interesting about these games um and i would say the same thing is kind of true about roguelikes that are difficult too um i was thinking um by the way of a of a of hollow knight when you were talking about super meat boy and there's the white the white castle uh level at the very end which is basically an homage to super meat boy um but that that gave me a very similar feeling but um a lot of these games the mechanical difficulty leads to this kind of feeling of there's like a, there's like a stages of grief that you go through with a lot of these difficult bosses where you get to a point where you're like, I don't think I can beat this, this boss. Like, I don't think I can beat this, this, I don't think I can beat Ornstein and Smile. I don't think I can beat, um, Artorias. I don't think I can beat, um, you know, the white castle. And, uh, it's it's really kind of a weirdly existential moment that is something that I've dealt with in my entire life. Like, what do you do when you can't, you can't succeed? Like, you can't, you know, there is no success. What do you do in that moment? Um, and, uh, you know, what Soulsborne taught me is to just sort of take a breath, step back, assess the situation and see what happens. Um, and just kind of be open to what happens. And the more I'm able to do that in that game, the more I'm able to calm down and kind of think of it methodically, the better I do. And so it, it definitely did sort of, I think, I think it was sort of a moment for me in gaming that, um, really sort of went with all this other stuff that was going on in my life. So, um, I would say, let me think. Okay, I have I have a good and, and a bad. And I think the bad is bad enough. I just want to touch on it really quickly because I think a lot of people will relate to it. Games with unintentional mechanical difficulty. Mm -hmm. That is the game that I will put down <laughs> 
And and because I'm I'm generally a completionist. Like if I walk past, I mean you don't you don't do this because you don't go anywhere anymore. But like if if I walk past a TV display at Best Buy and they're playing clips of Planet Earth, like that's the my weekend. It's over because I have to go watch all of Planet Earth. Like I have to go. Find, I do not walk away from stuff except for games that have mechanical difficulty that they're not supposed to have. That Superman is, 64. Yes, Superman. Superman. 64. And actually, the Nintendo 64, it, for everything it is, has a fair amount of that. I'm thinking also um, the Castlevania 64 uh, had some platforming parts, but was not built really well for platforming. And you would... Was that transition to the you know second analog stick and yeah. everything? That was just like, it was a mess. It was rough. It was rough. And there when it when it's... When a game is clearly, and it's interesting to pick up what the markers are for this, right? But when a game is clearly harder than it's supposed to be, that is just, I, I can't get over it. But I would say a, a, a good difficulty for me, um, and this is going to kind of touch back on something Roger said a long time ago now about familiarity, Um and I wasn't going to talk about this, but it's the this week is the anniversary of of the release, so I'm going to pull out a classic. Um, the Ocarina of Time had a Master Quest edition that you could get if you. I think it was no, it wasn't if you pre-ordered Wind Waker. That was the other one. I can't remember how you got it, but there was a way you could you could get a disc for the GameCube. That would let you play The Legend of Zelda, The Ocarina of Time, um, both the original 64 version and the, the Master Quest. And what the Master Quest was, was everything else was the same. The story was the same. The mechanics were the same. It looked the same. But they redid all the dungeons. All of the dungeons were different. And they, to, to the degree that it was impossible to predict, like... What they did was, and this is what was so delighted me about it, and why I continue to play. It's the version of the game that I actually still still play today. Um, when I when I play it, is that the puzzles specifically played with what your expectations would have been from the first time you played through the game. Yeah, it is, and they had specific places where you they knew the first place you would go look and they would intentionally put a decoy there and that that would either not solve the puzzle or hurt you um my favorite because we need to do have a, a gross uh thing was um there's there's a level where you're inside like the guts of a fish um and you uh there, there's sort of all these like uh sort of parasites like crawling around inside and 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 what they did was they they made that whole level based on um cows they stuck the 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 cow sprites that they had for normally for the um the farm part of the game they stuck them in the wall and stuff and in different places and you had to like play songs for the cows or shoot the cows it was all and so the fish level instead of being like the level where you found the boomerang and could finally start defeating enemies you could only kill with the boomerang became like this level where you're looking for cows and anyway rather than continuing to wax on about it i will just say that what what i loved what i loved about it 
was that it took something like the most familiar thing, right? Like, I don't know if there's a game that could be more sort of closer to my experience of rereading The Lord of the Rings, right, than, than Ocarina of Time. But it took this thing that was the closest possible thing to me and made it new by making it harder. And um, that kind of makes me wonder if I were to go into some of the other games I like now and just change the difficulty level, like if it would have that same effect for me, or if it's important that it also, like, that the puzzles were a little bit different. But that I'll have to do some experimenting and get back to you on. Yeah, the new game plus mode would be, I mean, we don't have to talk about it, but that's... yeah. You know, that's definitely the sort of principle behind that is like making it new by making it hard. Right, right, exactly. Chris, you want to send us home on this topic? Sure, sure, and I'll try and do it swiftly. But uh, um, yeah, I, I was going to actually talk differently because I've I've had uh, I was going to tell a different story because I've I've had moments in my life that are just like too damn heavy for gaming to actually really affect that much in a certain way. Like I lost the partner I was referring to for to ALS, and I couldn't even game during that situation at that time because it was just too it was just too rough. And beforehand, I could game, and then coming back to games was a relief, no matter how dark they were. Like there was just something that. That, that was like, you know, th- this is a different world that you could occupy in some ways. But I'm going to instead talk about Resident Evil, uh, which I always love to talk about. I'll talk about Resident Evil to the, you know, to the cows turn into skeleton cows. But, uh, you know, um, uh, but Resident Evil, uh, um, I remember I used to be terrified of horror films and I, I, I used to be terrified of um, uh, like any and, and haunted houses used to trigger my, I, I have PTSD because of a lot of stuff that happened when I was a kid, but like, I used to not be able to do actual physical haunted houses, except for like the Disney one where like you'd be in a cart and they'd like, you know, swirl you around and you didn't have to step forward. But the idea that you'd actually step into terror was horrifying to me. Like, why, why don't I just turn around and go back out the entrance? Like, what, what, you know, why would I actually want this? Um, you know, and so like, and yet I was, you know, I actually started to learn to like horror films and, and playing the first couple Resident Evils like taught me how in, in a mediated space, because one of the important things for me is that games are always still a mediated space. It's not, you aren't like, there isn't like a human actor grabbing your leg as they, there are in haunted houses sometimes, you know, like, you know, in a mediated space, I could occupy a haunted house and finally feel okay with it. It wasn't about mastering it. It was just about being okay in it, you know, and, and that felt really important. And that's, that's maybe a part of that kind of notion of effective difficulty that, that you were talking about before, um, you know, if that makes sense. So I haven't read the Jagoda yet, but yeah. No, that's great. I think that's right. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that maybe has really come alive in this conversation is that, you know, even if we often think of mechanical difficulty as like the standard difficulty when we're talking about games, that we're really always processing multiple levels of difficulty in a game. Um, and probably the kind of games that we, you know, walk away with something uh, from have some kind of difficulty them have some kind of friction or grit that you rub up against and uh it doesn't have to be like how quickly can you uh press those buttons or you know turn those sticks can you memorize the right combo patterns in a fighting game or whatever sometimes it might just be being able to get through a heavy cutscene or uh making sense of deaths in return of the Oberdin or whatever right um and I think 
you know, we had there's plenty of room for comfort food games. Like I like a good Assassin's Creed as a kind of comfort food game, or like an Ubisoft game as a comfort food game. Sort of guilty pleasure for a variety of reasons. But there's also something about those games that leave their mark on you because you just like there's some friction there. So why don't we our home stretch how we end every episode, which is our non-game recommendations, and I'll start us off with a recommendation of a novel, which is N.K. Jemison's *The City We Became*. Uh, people might know N.K. Jemison from her *Broken Earth* trilogy, which won the Nebula and the Hugo. I think for each novel in that trilogy, *The City We Became* is her response to H.P. Lovecraft's horror and to occult horror more generally, but also her like ambivalent love letter to New York City. I'm actually teaching it right now in my weird fiction course, my supernatural horror course, uh, and the students seem to be digging it, uh, despite the fact that it's her longest novel in the course. And uh, it's not super long, it's maybe like 450 pages, but it's also a novel where Jemison like, lets her sense of humor uh out and just lets it sort of run wild and so without getting into too many details the premise of this is that new york city has become like such a vital alive city that all of a sudden it has avatars representing its different boroughs and then one avatar representing all the boroughs and of course it's under threat by this occult enemy who's represented by the woman in white who is of course like the twin embodiment of white supremacism and gentrification. Uh, and it, it's like a hokey novel in some ways. I wouldn't say it's Jemison's best novel, but it's definitely her funniest novel. And even when it's like a little too on the nose, like the avatar for Brooklyn is a city council member who used to be a well-known rapper from, uh, who's, you know, who used to go, I think by like MC Brooklyn or something. Uh, but it's still, it's just like, a, it's, a, it's a really thoughtful novel about racism and anti-racism and about uh, the way in which horror can be not just about the fear of the other, but also about the vibrancy we get from like being in contact with different kinds of folks and like being in contact with like diverse milieu, diverse environments. Yeah, it was really weird. I, I actually read that when it came out. Um, and that was right when New York was under lockdown. And so there was a lot of like conversation about um, viruses in New York. And people were actually asking Jemison, did you know? And she's like, of course, I didn't know. But it was just a weird kind of coincidence, right? Um, the book that I'm, I'm about a fourth of the way through this book, so I don't know a lot of it. But um, I'm actually reading uh, Chen Q. Fan's uh, Waste Tide. Um, and it's a novel, it's one of the, the, it's translated by Ken Liu, who also translated, uh, three body problems, six and lose three body problem, which, um, I would have to say it also won the Hugo, uh, the six and Liu book. Um, and it's probably one of my favorite trilogies of the last decade, I would say, um, in terms of all of its crazy ideas and stuff like that. This novel, the, uh, waste tide is, uh, Q Fan's first, uh, novel. Um, but it's also really interesting. It, it's actually about this, um, this city, um, this sort of fictional, uh, well, it's actually an isle called the Silicon Isle in China, uh, that recycles e-waste. And, um, it's also about class warfare. So, um, you know, we get personal stories of all of these people who, uh, 
who help recycle the waste um, for these. Uh, they're actually called clans and it's sort of a near future uh, po- uh, dystopian novel. Um, and the, it's really fascinating because the, um, the waste workers as they're called, uh, are permanently sort of, sort of transformed by this waste into these, uh, sort of, sort of, uh, I don't know if you ever read China Mieville's, uh, his, his novels that like a pretty street station and the star. Um, but the, you know, the, the group of people that are like disfigured, uh, where do they, they're remade. Yeah. So it's similar to the remade, except it's, they're, they're sort of altered by this waste. Um, and I'm, I'm excited. I'm actually thinking of teaching it. I'm going to teach it in the spring in my graduate class. Um, but there's just, I haven't actually read another novel that deals in such detail with what I think is a huge problem in our, in our world right now, which is electronic waste, what we do with our, with our materials when they're no longer, when they're obsolescent. So it's pretty cool. It's pretty good. Can I say, I just, I really want to listen to an L, an album or an LP who's that's titled altered by waste. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what's your recommendation? Oh, sure. Uh, my recommendation is an album, actually. Uh, uh, although uh, I don't know if it actually exists. In, I think it probably does exist in vinyl form. I've been listening to it just on, on uh, you know, on streaming. But uh, uh, it's Nicholas Jarre's uh, most recent album, Telus. Uh, and Nicholas Jarre is a Chilean-American uh, uh electronic music producer DJs sometimes but his stuff has gotten most of it tips into the sort of ambient uh, side of things although that's almost not quite doing it justice it's more like a uh, uh, complex uh, uh, live time improvisation that's manipulated live in the studio uh, uh, you know with electronics and and uh, he, he released two two albums this uh, year and I actually just wrote about this for uh, in a piece uh, this and two other albums that came out recently for a piece uh, for another site which I'm I'm going to plug here since I'm here. Uh, uh, but uh, um, hyped on melancholy, which in which a lot of people write about music, uh, a lot of academics write about music. But uh, um, and I'm interested in what happens when the, the 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 space of the dance floor no longer exists as a kind of space of collectivity uh, uh, in our pandemic moment. And what's interesting with uh, Jar is that he. He produces a, a, a electronic music that feels much more like it's about infrastructure than it is about um, uh, uh, culture in a certain way. In fact, all the sounds feel decultured in it and renatured um, so that they become their own kind of way of building a kind of sonic structure. It almost feels like a, a series of underground ch- tunnels um, that are echo chambers, you know, almost like uh, um, Pauline Ol- Oliveros' uh, deep listening projects. And, and he, he splices in all kinds of different sort of musical uh, uh, stuff that's actually being played live in the studio, but also has kinds of different geographical provenances, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, free jazz horns and, and you know, various kinds of plucked guitar, uh, 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 bells and, 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 and uh, um, you know, various kinds of metal uh, percussion. And, uh, and it all becomes a kind of like, you know, beautiful, both intimate and alien sort of flora uh, that, 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 you know, that lines the, the, the space of the infrastructure uh, that, this, that this music builds. And I think it becomes a way forward. I think it actually imagines what if we had a, an infrastructure that rather than um, existing against the, the, you know, the world ecology, existing against the ecosystem, actually worked with the ecosystem and built something really different and new that we could inhabit and, and not be scared to die within 50 years you know, because of climate change. So I think there's something really beautiful about it. Oh, that's great. 
Thanks. And back to our uh, sort of theme of surviving in the ruins. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, Nate, what have you got for us? All right. I this week is all about cartoons. I'm 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 I'm, I'm hitting y'all with some good cartoons. Uh, if you haven't uh, watched a cartoon in a while, um, Cartoon Network's uh, Steven Universe, made by um, Rebecca Sugar, uh, uh, is just a phenomenal and really cool show. So the. The the whole thing I know is on HBO Max. I believe a couple seasons are on Hulu as well. Um, and it is a cartoon about a boy who lives with three other beings. I, I want to be careful not to give too much away because they're sort of who and what they are is revealed slowly over the course of the show in a cool way. Um, and his mom was one of these beings and had to give up her corporeal form in order to give birth to him. And um, his, his dad is a sort of aging out of hair metal guy who owns a car wash and lives in a van. Um, and Does one ever age out of hair metal? Well, see, the thing, <laughs> and, and he's really cool. Just like, out of as hair. A, as a, as a, for, for me, yes. and I, I really, in the, in the visual version of this, I think everyone will see how funny this is too. For me, as a prematurely balding guy, um, as opposed to us maturely, as opposed balding, to the yes, mature yes. bald, bald heads that I can see, yes. um, it, his Greg universe's hair like starts here and then goes all the way down his back, like all the way down to his butt. So that's what I mean by like, he, he never gave up, you know, um, but so the show is this balance of kind of um, Stephen and the three characters who are called uh, Crystal Gems, who he lives with, Garnet, Pearl, and Amethyst, and they sort of function as kind of like his three moms, since his mom is sort of part of him in a, in a confusing way. So they're kind of going on these co- various cosmic adventures to try to protect um earth in this sci-fi world and then there are episodes that take place in this little coastal boardwalk town which has is kind of you know empty when it's not summer and there's only a couple businesses really there and there's only a couple people for him to to get to know or, or talk to and it's about engaging with sort of them and their problems um it's a show that really uh highlights it has a lot of what i i mean what i think i mean everybody's uh opinions about representation are their own i think there are some very cool queer relationships in this show um and there are also and oh hear me out on this there are some really really good musical numbers like i know that cartoons aren't supposed to like and, and Disney songs suck. I'm sorry, they suck. I'm sorry if we lost you. They're terrible. <laughs> um, but like the um, uh, Rebecca Sugar, the, the the person who sort of produces and and and, and makes the show, um, is also a songwriter and and a very good songwriter. And there are cool ways that the music gets brought into the story. Um, but it's a story about. Uh, like we were talking about in the, in the podcast, a story about making a lot of mistakes um, because Steven has some of his mom's powers and doesn't know how to use them um, and is not very competent 
just in general. There are a lot of things that he's not good at it, but he's very big hearted and generous. And I've really, really enjoyed watching it. And I, yeah, I've been watching it with my son, but it's there's a lot of stuff that as an adult has has really drawn me drawn me into it in some cool ways. Um, and I'd say that it's uh, it's a show that's worth your time if you feel like you could use a reminder that like you can make mistakes and things are still going to be OK. It's it's a really neat, really neat uh, program. All right. I, I think we're going to call that a wrap, but we've gone from meat punks through mistakes, through crises, midlife and otherwise and beyond. Uh, and so thanks for listening and, you know, keep an ear out for our upcoming uh, podcast on Miles Morales, maybe one on Immersive Sims and an interview coming very soon uh, with Patrick Jagoda on his book, Experimental Games. And, Thanks for joining us, and we will see you the next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Do your sting. Do your sting. (laughs) We are gamers. We wear glasses. Gamers with glasses. (laughs) Ha <laughs> ha.